Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is engineer Kevin Killen. First of all, I don't know if you've read, but Twitter was considering culling its inactive accounts. So in other words, if you had a Twitter account that you didn't log into for six months or longer, they were going to remove you, remove your account. And the reason why everybody was thrilled about this or other users were thrilled about this is there is lots of really good handles, Twitter handles, that were suddenly going to become available. Well, there was an uproar that kind of stopped the whole thing. And believe it or not, it was because of deceased people and their accounts. If you were dead, there's no way that you could actually log on to your account. But everybody kind of feels that that's a digital legacy that should live on. So as a result, Twitter is now re-examining its policy of culling its inactive files. And it will probably be something just like Facebook and Instagram has. In that case, you can memorialize your account. So all the posts stay alive, but nobody can log in anymore. Family can at first, but then after that you can't. But this is going to become a bigger and bigger problem as we move on where it's not only deceased people, but it's going to be people that have inactive accounts. And inactive generally means that you didn't log in. It doesn't necessarily mean you didn't post at all. It's that you didn't log in in a certain amount of time. But I think we're going to begin to see this happen more and more where there's going to be policies that say you have to log in once a quarter, once a year, whatever the case may be, or else you risk losing your account altogether. So just be aware that this may come down, and it may come down soon, first for Twitter, but then for everything else. So if you have a particular handle that you really like, make sure you protect it by at least logging in. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now let's talk about plugins. There's an evolution that's going on, and I'm not so sure that everybody sees this happening. Let me just give you some history of how this worked. In the beginning of digital audio workstations, there were some rudimentary plugins that for the most part, any engineer, any mixer that had analog experience, they pretty much thought they sounded pretty bad. And then the software developers thought, well, you know what? We should try to make our plugins sound like the analog devices that everybody is used to. So now we had these gear emulations. And again, in the beginning, they weren't that good, but over time, they got better and better. And it got to the point where most experienced mixers would say, you know what, it's 90% of the way there, it's 95% of the way there, I can deal with it. But now, things are actually going into a different realm. Now, there's a whole new generation of mixers that really haven't had a lot of experience on analog gear to begin with. So as far as emulations are concerned, they don't really care. What they really care about is getting plugins that really help them and help them quickly. 
because in today's world, we don't spend as much time recording or mixing or much of that at all. Things happen fairly quickly. So we want to get to the point quickly with plugins, especially, and that's why presets are becoming more and more important. Even experienced mixers like presets. Why? Well, it gets them to the point very, very fast where they can say, you know, sounds pretty good. Not going to play too much longer on this. And then we have a whole new suite of machine learning influenced processors that are doing much of the job of a mixer already. Now, you can say that's good, you can say it's bad, whatever the case, this is happening, it's coming, it's becoming more and more viable, and it's getting better at what it does. It's not going to displace anybody, especially great mixers, they still will not be displaced. But for somebody who's just starting, this is a really good place for them to get their feet wet. Now, what I see happening is that the classic engineers have been away from it for long enough, they're sort of forgetting what it was like. And they now see the advantages of being in the box. So now those mixers in particular who are pretty persnickety about the way everything sounded are less so these days. And then you have the new generation of mixers that really don't care one way or the other. And what I see happening is we're going to see fewer and fewer emulations in the future. We're going to see some differentiations go away. So for instance, you have the five different types of reverbs and you have the four different types of compressors. At some point in time, it doesn't matter. So a VCA versus a Varimu compressor doesn't matter so much. Then does it sound good? Does it work well? So I think we're now on the cusp of that happening where developers have pulled out just about as much as they can from analog gear, from analog emulations, and now we're moving into a new realm of, let's just make it work, and let's make it work better than it ever could before, and not worry about making it sound like something. Now, here's something scary that I predict might happen. Remember back in the past where you had studios and you had radio and television stations that were throwing out their analog gear, and you hear all the stories about finding Fairchilds in the dumpster, that may happen again, as now we're so ingrained in the digital domain that analog gear, analog outboard gear, doesn't mean that much to us. And we may see that happen one more time. You know what? This time, nobody might care. So start looking your dumpsters. <laughs> it might not happen tomorrow. It might not happen next year. But you know what? It is going to happen sooner or later. My guest today is Kevin Killen, who's a multi-Grammy award-winning engineer who's worked with such luminaries as David Bowie, U2, Peter Gabriel, Yo-Yo Ma and the Silk Road Ensemble, Sugarland, Shakira, and so many more. Besides working on what many consider seminal albums like Peter Gabriel's So and U2's Unforgettable Fire, Kevin has also worked on Broadway cast albums and movie soundtracks as well. He's also been a longtime proponent of in-the-box mixing and an all-digital workflow, taking up the cause way before it became popular. During the interview, we spoke about working with Peter Gabriel, getting arrangement tips from Burt Bacharach, working on David Bowie's last album, his unique mixing template, and much, much more. I spoke with Kevin via phone from his home in New York. I want to go back to the beginning because I don't know that I ever got your full story. I mean, we've talked several times, but I never heard how you started in the business. So uh, what is your backstory? 
the backstory is I was in uh, I was in college in Dublin at Trinity College doing a uh, natural science undergraduate degree, and um, I was also playing music with friends, and um, I had a drum set. I was taking lessons, and I just was playing music for fun. I you know I grew up with, in a family of eight, and all my all my brothers, you know, and sisters love music, and I was sixth in 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 line of succession, and so we had a lot of music in our house. And um, I I just was looking for something that really kind of made me passionate. And as much as I like science, I didn't I didn't see myself pursuing a career in that. So I I was coming towards the end of my second year, and I needed to find like a summer job. And I think I had seen. Uh, a documentary about XTC. It was the making of one of the records. I believe it was with Hugh Pageant and Steve Lillywhite. And I thought, oh, that's a really interesting thing. Well, people make records. Oh, I wonder if that's something I'd be interested in because it kind of kind of brought together all my interests, music, you know, engineering, architecture, which I was interested in as a, as a teenager. And um, and so I just literally pulled out the, the phone book, like the, the yellow pages, in Dublin and looked up recording studios <clears throat> and uh, and there were like eight studios in the city at the time so I went around to each of them just looking for an internship and one of the studios hired me um, and I never went back to college. I, I just walked in that first day um, in late April and uh, I thought to myself, yeah, this is where, this is what I want to do and everybody thought I was completely nuts. <laughs> so I kind of took a, took a, I took a sabbatical for a year but then I, Really, within that first year, I knew that's what I wanted to do, and I absolutely adored it. So, yeah, that's that was my basic backstory. I spent a year and a half, almost two years in that studio, and then I got uh, I got hired over at Windmill Lane, um, which was the premier course at the time where you two did all their work, and I worked there for almost three years, and then I kind of pretty much, you know, had risen to um, kind of the ceiling is where. It, far as I could go and uh, my bosses were like well it's kind of really time you know for you to go freelance and uh, then, the, then the question was like where would I want to freelance so it was either uh, stay in Dublin go to London or you know try somewhere else and, and Dublin like I said is a pretty small music based community and I thought well I'm not going to nobody's going to hire me as an independent engineer um, when they can hire the house engineer and in London at the time you know there was there was a real palpable sense of um, distrust between the English and the Irish, uh, given what was going on politically with the IRA, you know, having a bombing campaign on the British mainland. So that didn't seem like a good move. And I thought, well, you know, historically, the U.S. was being very friendly towards Irish people, or at least it was at that time. So I thought maybe I'd come here. And I had a couple of contacts here. I, I had just finished a record with Brian Eno and Daniel Anwar. And... Um, uh, to their connections and also um, to Jimmy Ivan and Shelly Yakis. They put me in touch with the Hit Factory here in New York. And I knew one other person, Randy Azradi, who um, owned a remote recording company called FNL. Oh, yeah, I remember. And he had come to Ireland. Yeah, he came to Ireland to uh, record, um, or we used a system to record the Unforgettable Fire. And so I knew I got to know Randy over those couple of months. So I knew I had a place to stay, and so I ended up in New York in late '84, and pretty much I stayed here for you know I think about it was November. I stayed until beginning of June, I believe it was, or end of May, and uh, right around that time, Dan uh, Lenvall had called me because he was 
working on uh, a record with Peter Gabriel and asked me to come over to to help him finish it. And he, you know, at the time, I got on a call with him and uh, with Dan and Peter and with uh, their manager or Peter's manager, Gail Colton. And we thought I'd be over there for maybe about six weeks. And I ended up being there for 10 months. Uh-huh. And when that record was over, I came back and there was plenty of work and there were things, you know, plenty of offers and jobs and stuff like that. So I ended up basing myself out of New York. Um, and I've been here ever since. Well, that record with Peter was huge. That couldn't hurt. Yeah. Yeah, no, it didn't hurt. I mean, Peter was very present. He, he, um, when we were getting towards the end of the record, he pulled me aside and said, like, well, what are you going to do you know, when the record's over? And I was like, well, I'm going back to New York. I have this one offer of this job with uh, Howard Jones, um, was making a record with Arif Martin. You know, ironically enough, they were actually going to start the record in Dublin at Wimbledon Lane. So I think I came back to New York for a couple of weeks and then went back to Dublin and started that record with Arif and Howard. But um, but Peter had said to me, you, you're going to need a manager. Um, he said, I think the record's going to do quite well and I think you're going to get offers of work and you need somebody to help you sort through the appropriate course of action and have somebody you know, represent you and, you know, to contacts and discuss terms and all that kind of stuff. So uh, two of my friends in New York, um, Ellen Darst and Karen Kaplan, they were they belonged to U2's uh, principal management company here in New York. And um, they around that time, they were starting their own little management uh, uh, company called Mambo Management. And when I came back, they asked me would I be their first client. I think it was T-Bone Burnett and myself were the first two clients that they represented so yeah so i they they were great and helped me kind of navigate that transition from being you know uh, a freelancer into being a freelancer in demand and it was really helpful extremely helpful because they also had worked both at warner brothers and electra and they knew a lot of people within the label system so it was really great it was a good transition now, i'm glad to hear you say that because many engineers that i speak with when we speak about management it's usually a pretty negative outlook that they have because management hasn't helped them a whole lot or they do it first and then they kind of lose interest. So uh, you're lucky that you've got somebody right away that could be very helpful to you. Yeah. Plus I, I, I had known Ellen. Ellen was coming over to Dublin to, to monitor, you know, YouTube albums, you know, while they were in progress. So I'd met her, um, you know, a number of times in Dublin and I knew that she was a really, beautiful human being and she's very articulate and smart and I just thought oh she's a great person and when I when I moved to New York uh, I had spoke to Karen on the phone a number of times so when I went into the office I met Karen and uh, you know we immediately hit it off because the same age and kind of similar sense of humor and uh, so you know when I was coming back from from the Gabriel record uh, and you know, I mentioned to them that I, I said I should get a manager and they were like well you know funny enough we're starting a management company and I thought well, these are two women I absolutely adore, and I think they're super smart. And uh, yeah, so it was a really great experience. Because um, one of the hardest things to do as an engineer, or even not even, I mean, as a self-employed person, it's very hard to negotiate for yourself. Yeah. And um, to have that kind of dispassionate view and be able to negotiate in good faith and, and and know what to ask for and you know when to push and when not to push, and and it's always nice to have somebody in your corner doing that for you. It was great. You know, the other thing, too, is when you're working crazy long hours, you kind of get into the mindset of you're only focused on what you're working on, and it's really difficult to then think of business at the same time. 
Yeah, and, and it's also, that's that's never the conversation you want to have with the artist because the artist has a manager. It, generally speaking, the label represents themselves. So you really want to have somebody who can have those, you know, uh, dispassionate conversations yeah, and you don't get any, you don't create any animus or anything like that. It's when you walk into the room and you're, you're trying to be creative, nobody's thinking, oh my God, you know, he's so difficult or she's so difficult or they're so difficult when... You're just trying to negotiate what you think is a fair and, and uh, appropriate fee for your time. Because really, at the end of the day, I don't think anybody, even back in the 80s, nobody got rich being paid as an engineer or mixer. You know, maybe not, maybe not from being an engineer. Maybe the mixing, the whole, the whole kind of move to mixing. You know, certainly some people got, you know, did really well with that. But I mean, in terms of your engineering record, you got a decent fee. And maybe if you're on the production, you, you got a chance to participate in the royalties if there were royalties. And But, you know, you were definitely getting paid for your time. And those records took three, four or five months to make, you know, back in the 80s and, and, and early 90s. You, know, you, you invested a lot of time you know, throughout, throughout the process. So, sure. yeah, it was, it was definitely you know, good to have people who could say, oh, no, this is appropriate, this is fair. And, and generally people thought that way, so it was great. You know, it's interesting because you just mentioned about how long records would take, and it seems like they're a lot faster these days for whatever reason, but I was looking at your discography, and I see that you've done something with Yo-Yo Ma and with uh, Elvis Costello and Burt Bacharach, which for some reason I think those didn't take as long <laughs> as, you know, something like Peter Peter Gabriel. So uh, would your approach be different? I think it's, you know, each record is, is unique in its own regard because depending on what the, you know, the cast of characters assembled, um, you, you modify your approach based on what the best way to capture this particular project is. Like with Peter, certainly there was a tracking phase, but then there was a lot of layering going on as Peter worked on lyrics. And so a lot of the music was completed before lyrics were completed. And then once he had finalized lyrics, you go back and, you refine some of the music and sometimes you change the track completely based on what the lyric was doing. Um, but then with something uh, like like Silk Road and Yo-Yo Ma, that's an ensemble piece, they pretty much everything was tracked. A lot of it was tracked simultaneously because that's normally how they play. So the, you get a chunk of the record in a you know week or 10 days of tracking, but then you go back in and you refine stuff and maybe there's some overdubs. But yeah, the actual recording portion of it is is um is is quite quick and then with Elvis and Burke well I, you know I've done seven or eight albums with Elvis over the years um and he always likes to work quite fast um so you know, typically you would track a whole record in a couple of weeks and then there'd be overdubs um and you know some sweetening and then mixing so maybe six or eight weeks with with him uh with with the with the collaborative record that he did with Burt Bacharach Bert came in and everything was already... We actually had recorded God Give Me Strength first um, as a one-off song. That was the very first song they wrote together. And then, then like they enjoyed that experience so much that about a year and a half later, we went back into the studio to record the rest of the songs. So in that intervening period, they worked on all the all the writing and, and Bert arranged everything. And on day one of tracking, there was a lead sheet and you could see everything you know out on the score. And we tracked with... You know, drums, bass, two guitars, two pianos, Elvis singing live. So we, you know, a lot of I think of twelve or thirteen songs on that record. Six or seven of the vocals were caught live uh, during the tracking. So we did. 
probably two weeks of tracking and then two weeks of overdubs with backgrounds and horns and strings and percussion. And then about, you know, 12 days for mixing. And we even mix that record by hand, like without it, without using automation. <laughs> so we just felt more, yeah, felt more organic to do it that way. And, uh, and it was fun. And it, actually during that record, it was the first time where Bert, you know, when we got into mixing the first song, he goes, okay, let's start with the vocal. So we pushed up the vocal for it. He said, okay, bring up the piano. And we kind of worked the mix from the top down, like vocal, piano, all the counterpoint instruments, uh, all the harmony. And then we worked in percussion and drums last. And and it was interesting, like mixes went quite quite fast because I mean, we all knew the material. Um, but he spent the whole time, probably from tracking, from the initial tracking right through the mixing, actually removing parts from the arrangement and we had done a couple of mixes and I said to him, okay, so you come in in the beginning, everything's arranged and, but then you spend the majority of time removing elements as opposed to most other producers I've worked with, they keep adding. And he goes, yeah, I kind of write that way deliberately. I, I tend to overwrite it, maybe over embellish a little bit, but then when it gets to the mix, I really just want to hear like the perfect distillation of the arrangement so that when the listener gets to the end of the song, they really yearn to go and hear it again. He said, that's what I'm trying to go for. And I thought that was such an interesting, you know, approach. And when you listen to his records, they are, you know, they can be quite spare uh, at times. And then there's like a little flourish and a little beautiful moment or a motif. And maybe it only happens once. And then you go back and you listen to it again because you really want to hear that little exceptional moment. And it was such a clever way of working. Yeah. So it kind of informed the way I worked ever since. I was back in 96, 97, I believe. Yeah. So, well, yeah, fascinating. so were the arrangements really thick then, and then you thinned them out? They weren't. They, were, like, they weren't super thick, but but yet again, they they probably had more moments in them that, he, and he just decided, okay, we don't need to have the you know second piano doing playing in that verse, and we don't need to have the horn line do this, and we don't need to have all the background parts singing all the choruses, you know. So he really kind of kept distilling it down. He might have them perform in each section that he had originally written for, but then he would kind of pare down the arrangements. So I wouldn't say they were super thick in the beginning, but they were certainly beautiful arrangements. And, but, and that, since we recorded with a large section uh, during the tracking, you could really hear how the arrangement sounded, um, you know, both the sonic relationship of everything, but then he was going to add percussion, orchestral percussion, and strings, and horns, and background vocal parts. So yeah, he wanted to pare things down as well. Um, yeah, it's just fascinating way of working. I know you worked on uh, David Bowie's last record, Black Star. Did everyone know he was ill when you were working? Uh, on 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 day one of the record, that's when everybody found out. Yeah, yeah. Up to that point, nobody knew. Um, and uh, the record was originally slated to begin three or four months beforehand, and and we all got uh, informed that there was a delay and. And then the first day in the studio, David came in and, and, and announced the reason for the delay was that he'd been ill. But that he was determined, uh, he said, I'm feeling good and I'm, you know, I really want to make this record and I'd like everybody to, you know, just respect uh, my privacy. So we all had to sign an NDA and stuff like that. So we, we, we were very, very cognizant of, you know, his personal space. And, but he was fantastic every day in the studio, he came in and he was very energetic and very focused. And we, got through a lot of material pretty quickly. So it was pretty amazing. Yeah, I'm curious how quickly he worked. Uh, in speaking with Ken Scott, 
he would tell me stories about the albums he worked on where it'd be first, second, third take, and that was it. And the musicians would actually be frustrated saying, wait, wait, I can play it better. And he'd go, no, 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 I'm happy with that. Was it somewhat the same? Well, he had chosen um, Donnie's band, Donnie McCasin's band. So it's Donnie, Mark Giuliani, Jason Linder, and Tim Lefebvre uh, playing bass. And they're really solid quartet. I mean, they can just play anything. So I think they had heard demos of the material. So we would typically come in, um, they would listen to the demo. They knew what they were going to play. They would, the quartet would go out and play it. David would listen. And then he would go out and join them in the in the live room and he would sing with them and we'd do maybe two or three takes. And generally speaking, yes, it was. It was you know, probably one of those takes that were, was the final one. And, and we would often come back and maybe try a different version of the song on a different day, maybe a slightly different arrangement, or maybe he'd come up with a different idea. We would do the exact same thing. But in general, yeah, they were... They were, um, you know, first, second, third takes. And like I said, the band was so tight that there weren't that many mistakes. Um, <laughs> you know, these are really good players. and but it, but it had a real rawness to it and a freshness to it because, yet again, it's that thing in the studio where if you play something 20 times, it's hard to generate the same, there's more detail, but, but that freshness is perhaps just actually just kind of dulled a little bit. Ken also told me a story about working with Richard Perry, speaking of what you're just talking about, where Richard felt that he couldn't get a good take out of the band until they played it at least 30 times. So they would play it and play it and then get tired, and he felt that as soon as they came out the other end, when they kind of got frustrated, they'd get some energy, and that's when he'd get the best take, which yeah, that must be difficult for everybody <laughs> you know, going through that. Well, yeah, I mean, I've, I've witnessed that too many times, and I sometimes I've been the one pushing it too, where you, you keep you're digging for something, you're not quite sure what it is you're digging for, you just keep feeling like it's not quite there yet, and everybody's wondering, and then people start to second guess what they're playing. Um, but eventually, you, you arrive at a place where where it can be, you know, you, you get the take that you feel has all the essence of the spirit and the detail that you want, and you hope that everybody enjoys the journey. And yeah, I mean, look, it's certainly, it's certainly human nature to, to, to be frustrated because it's not nice to be on the, under the microscope, you know, continuously. I mean, musicians like to be able to play things and they like to be able to do things in a, in a you know, efficient manner and with some spirit and emotion. And it's hard to keep that level of all those three attributes up when you played it for the 40th or 50th time. So, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting, yeah. <laughs> an interesting experience. Yeah. What, what do you prefer, recording or mixing? You know, I like both for different reasons. I like I like the creativity associated with recording. You know, when when you don't really know exactly what it is you're you're going for, and you have a group of creative people in the room, and and you just kind of com- collaborate together to come up with something cool, either in terms of the arrangement, in terms of the sound, and and then you execute that. Then obviously with mixing, it's more of a solitary endeavor, so you kind of get into your own head and just try different things, especially in today's environment where everything is kind of in the in the in the dull environment. Um, yeah, they're both different. They're both they're both very different hand spaces. I I think that mixing is a real focused kind of thing, and it's not to say that recording is not. It's just a focus in a different way. You're looking at the bigger picture, whereas mixing you tend to get drawn down into the details more and more. When you're mixing these days. 
Are you doing it faster than when you used to do it on a console or does it take longer for you? It depends on the project. Um, I would say if it's something that I've recorded and been involved in from the beginning, it's probably a little faster. If it's something that I've had no um, relationship up to that point, then I have to learn the song a little bit. Maybe, maybe it takes a little bit longer and, and it's all driven by people's budgets these days. I mean, as it always was, but it's certainly more of a given now. Um, people want, they want everything. You know, people don't have budgets ostensibly at this point. And so they want things to, to sound good quickly. And so I've just developed a different approach to mixing in the box from what I did in the in, on the console just to kind of be more efficient and get to the broader strokes more quickly. And then if you if, if the artist wants to get into refined detail, then we can do that, and it's still efficient. So, yeah, the different, the very different headspace. I, mean, I find them different for myself. Anyway, I, I, I find I get thrown if I'm working on a mix, and then somebody says, "Oh, let's go do some recording." I'm like, "Wait, that's <laughs> that's a very different thing," you know. And it does happen, but uh, and sometimes it's, it's great. You know, you get a different perspective. But but I do I find for myself it's a I I go into a different zone when I'm mixing versus um, when I'm recording. You don't use a lot of processing, do you? I It depends. I mean, generally speaking, I don't use a lot of processing. Well, certainly with things that I've recorded, I try to capture things that actually have the processing already embedded in it, and that's just coming from my training as an engineer who worked on tape, uh, you know, in the pre-automation days. So, um, you know, in the first year I worked at Lombard Sand, there was no automation on the console, so everything was done manually. So if we want a particular effect that we were monitoring that we liked, you know, it probably behooved us to print it onto the multi-track. And then at Wimble Lane, we had, the first console we had was an MCI, and that was that, you know, where, where the automation, you, you ping-pong the automation uh, data between track 22 and track 24, you could probably get about eight passes, and then it, it was kind of really good for mutes and maybe for a little bit of VCA volume automation, but after that, you know, it started to, kind of lag behind the music uh, with a delay. And and then when we got an SSL at Wimble Lane, we, at the time, it I, I must have been a cost uh, concern. They didn't have total recall, um, uh, you know, purchased as an option for the console. So, you know, you could do recalls, but it was just faders and and um, pan pots really at that point. So, um, yeah. So I got used to mixing by hand and, I kind of enjoyed that experience because it was very much like a performance. And um, so, yeah, so when I, when I work that way, it, it, you know, it's certainly an easier way to work. Um, but now when everything's in the box, you know, I try to think, take that attitude and bring it into the box and, and try and get mixes up fairly quickly. And, you know, I'll use processing, processing if I think the recording warrants it. But if it, if I, if it doesn't, then I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not the, it's not the first thing I do. It's like stick on a bunch of you know plugins, and you know we all have a different way of approaching these kind of things. So I, I know a lot of engineers out there whose work I admire. I, you know when I see them give their breakdown of what they do, I go, "Wow, it's a lot of stuff," but it always sounds great. So, you know, who's to say um, what's the best approach? It's just whatever makes whatever whatever works and whatever moves the artist at the end of the day is the right the right approach. 
Speaking of workflow, I watched a video that you were in. Oh, it was for MixCon, I think. Oh, yeah, the MixCon, yeah, yeah. Which was very good, and you were excellent in your presentation. But I noticed that you weren't using the master fader in Pro Tools. Instead, you were using uh, a couple of auxes as your master. What, what's the reason for that? So what I was doing, what I, what my kind of mixing template is, I, I have, you know, three or four different pathways that I kind of push my audio down. I put like a drum and percussion sub, and then there's like a music sub. All the harmonic content goes down that one subgroup, and it's through an auxiliary. And then I have like a vocal sub. And then those three are all outputted to one final auxiliary. And I usually put like some final processing on that. And then the output of that goes to a print track. And I print right back into the multi-track. But actually pre all those auxes are, is a little master fader. And I use that as a, as a pre post send into the auxiliaries just to, you know, as a way of game staging it. Um, when I first started mixing in the box and maybe it was like 2003, 2004, the whole tactile nature uh, of working on a controlled surface or trying to work with a mouse, I found that really frustrating because you could really only do one thing. You could only instantiate an EQ or, you know, turn an EQ, processing, uh, process an EQ on one track at one moment in time. Whereas on a regular analog console, you can have both hands going. So I, I tried to, um, the plugins that I was using, I tried to use kind of more mastering style uh, plugins because I really wanted to not instantiate plugins on every track. I was like, is there a way of mixing the box that you can utilize minimum plugin set but still get maximum value? And I had just done a record uh, with Peter, uh, gave it back at Real World, where we had gone back and we had um, done a surround mix of So, and he wanted like a reverential version of it that just, you know, where if you flip between the stereo and the around it just sounded like a fold out of the of the original mix and we had done that on a Sony Oxford console and the original the original console we used was an SSL 4000E and um, you know I really liked the way the console sounded it was you know the HD sounded great and um, I also thought the, the compressors the compressors and um, the the dynamic section sounded really great and very analog and musical. So then they, Oxford or Sony Oxford came out with a suite uh, of plugins for um, for Pro Tools, and I think they just had the EQ and they had the uh, full dynamic section. And Peter had asked me to do uh, a mix for Real World Records, and there was this Irish artist named Irla Leonard who was originally one of the members of Afro Celts. Um, but he was singing, he, he put together a solo record and he was singing it in Gaelic and Peter asked me if I would mix the record. So but they wanted me to mix it in the box. And so, um, I think it was pre, might've been right around the time of, which is post TDM, but in first iteration of HT. So you could use discount, uh, delay compensation. Oh, yeah. Um, so I used that suite of plugins, um, and you know, and and this this record was a combination of acoustic instruments, so acoustic guitars, upright basses, some electronic components, some synths and samples, um, and then also like some old frame drums, like Barons and stuff like that. And and so, like it it was it had a big wide dynamic range, and it also like sonically had a lot of 
a lot of like super lows and uh, I wanted to do something that kind of kept that intact and I found that that suite um, uh, worked really well so I just created these kind of buses, bus paths and I drove everything down and I just put my EQ and my compression across the buses and when I sent it to Bob Ludwig um, because I was in the room I was working in it was a very shallow room so at the mixed position, it sounded great, but if you put your head back like five or six inches, all the low-end information just sounded really super huge and super loud and out of balance. And so when I sent it to Bob, he took a listen and he was like, this sounds great, like whatever you're doing, don't change a thing. <laughs> and um, and then we finished the record and sent it over to Peter, and Peter was like, it's the best record we've done today. It's the best sounding record we've had on real world uh, records. So... Um, I thought, oh, I can mix in the box. I can use this as a template. So I, you know, I, mo- I modified it a bit over time, but it's still essentially the same. I still use the same thing. So in that mix column uh, class, I actually there is a master fader. You know, I, there is I, maybe there was no fade out on that song. I think there's like a full stop or something like that on the song. But um, but I, there is a master fader in which one could do a fade out or fade in if one if one needed to. So yeah, it's funny. I haven't changed that. I might have changed the plugins that I've used, but essentially I still pretty much work the same way. I I I I, I try to tell you know young mixes are like I can get a good mix using these eight plugins um, across these four auxiliaries, and um, and then if I need to instantiate something on an individual track, I'll I'll do that. But I always start trying to get my balance using this kind of subgrouping and see if it'll, see if I can get it to work that way. Well, that must make everything go a lot faster then because you're dealing with balance rather than processing most of the time. Yeah, I mean, I, especially with something that I've worked on, I kind of know a good balance that, that kind of works. With something that I'm tr- learning as I'm mixing, I might try and push and pull it, you know, a bunch of different ways. And it also depends on what the, you know, what the client is requesting. You know, he has different tastes and sometimes they'll want a much more processed version of what they've delivered. And I'm happy to go that route too because that's 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 fun. Like that's one of the fun aspects of mixing. Oh, I get to really go in and try lots of effects. So that's great. I can I can have some fun with it. But yeah, it your your basic the basic setup for the mix. You know, you're working with these <clears throat> defined parameters, and um, I, it's worked in the past. I know it will work uh, in most instances. And you know, it's like a console. You know, it's like you have your trusted EQ and your trusted compressors and um, you know, then it works. It forces you to work on the balance and the right balance, and hopefully, um, hopefully, we'll make everything you know fall into place. I know you're a big fan of Universal Audio and mm-hmm. all their plugins. Are there other ones that you use that you find you're always going back to? You mean within within the UAD suite, or just generally? Well, let's start there in the UAD suite, and then tell me some of the other ones that you might be going to often. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, there's so many great companies out there that make so many great plugins. But I, 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 you know, I've kind of over the years, I've tried to distill it down into ones that I know I can use that I feel like, oh, I can use this to get this result. So in the UAD suite, I certainly like um, the LA2, the LA3s, the Poltec emulations, um, the Neve 1073s. Um, I find it great, and they also have a Helios. Um, EQ, which was the original console I worked on, so that's kind of familiar to me. And then, um, and then I really like their um, transient designer. It's such a great little tool. 
um, for either expanding reverberation or tightening something up uh, that maybe has too much space around it. And um, then in terms of effects, I love the 224, the RMX-16. Um, they're great. Um, and the EMT plates, the, both the 140 and uh, the 250 are all fantastic. So, you know, I, I'll use those. And then they also have emulations of, of Millennia, the NSEQ2, which I love. I have the hardware box of that, and I love that EQ because it has the twin topology, both the solid state and the tube. Uh, and you can set up your EQ curve and then flip between the two and see which one, you know, you like best. Um, and the Cambridge EQ is also great. You know, yet again, uh, and the API stuff. I mean, there's just so many choices, and sometimes there are too many choices. Uh, and then I'm a big fan of Eventide. Uh, I, I love all their, you know, all, all the harmonizers and uh, the Omnipressor and um, Black Hole. I mean, there's just so many great things. They have this thing called uh, Fizian or Fizon, I think that's what they announced. Oh yeah, that's also a really great. Little, yeah, it's a really great little uh, box. Um, and then obviously I still use this, uh, the Solox stuff, the uh, EQ and the inflator and the full dynamic section. And I really like their um, their su- super DS or suppressor they call it. Uh, that's also a very great little tool. And yet again, I mean, I start off with my default. <clears throat> And then depending what the material is, I might switch some things out because maybe something wants a, a different color. But I kind of have a, you know, Dan Lanois and Brian, you know, when I was working with them back in Dublin back in 1984, they were, you know, really encouraging me to like, you know, find the things you really like and get to know how to use them really well. And once you know how to use them well, like they're your trusted items to go to and uh, they won't let you down. And it was really good advice. Um, so, you know, yet again, those things you figure out a way to make them, uh, you know, current and at the same time feel um, uh, kind of reverential in terms of, you know, the era from which they came from. So it's pretty cool. What monitors are you using? Oh, I'm I'm using uh, Proax Studio 100s and I have a shallow amplifier that I have connected to them. And that's my main set of monitors. And then then I have a... um, uh, a Grace headphone amp and um, a pair of uh, Sennheiser, what are they, 580s, I think they are. Oh, yeah. Yeah, pretty much my, that's my mix room, and then um pair of Adams and S2As and yeah, another set of monitors that I use a lot. What are the challenges that you're facing these days? I think managing expectations is probably one of the biggest um, challenges because with the fact that everybody everybody can record themselves, you know the, the 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 variety of projects that you get offered, and the quality of them it varies from project to project. Some are very well recorded and produced, and then some sometimes you get projects that are, you know, recorded well in, in bits and maybe not so well in other areas. That's one. So the variety of stuff, like people, you know, everybody wants their record to sound the best it possibly can be, and sometimes if they didn't actually capture that on the recording, then it's very hard sometimes to deliver exactly what they're requesting. Um, and so managing that expectation is, that's a challenge. Also, you know, in a lot of it, cases, you get sessions where nobody really made a, made a decision along the way. They didn't make a decision about what, you know, what the sonic kind of footprint of the, uh, of the record was going to be. And they didn't really make a, 
the decision in terms of the arrangements and things are a little loose in terms of the arrangement and in terms of all the choices of performances and they're looking to the mixer to make those choices for them. And that's, that goes back to what I said, like that almost becomes like recording if you have to sift through and make those choices for the artist. And and that's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do it, but at the same time, that's not mixing. That's almost like, production in, in some in some regard. So um and if you're trying to get a mix done in a reasonable amount of time, let's say, you know, six hours, um, because that's what the budget will allow, then any of those kind of detours distracts from, you know, really what your time should be spent doing. So there 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 are some of the challenges. Um and you know, just wish that people at the end of the day, the way in which the consumer listens to music is, you know, uh, streaming, um, you know, at a, at a broadcast standard that's pretty pretty low. So um, it'd be nice if 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 everybody was listening in high fidelity and uh, you know, yeah. so that people could actually really appreciate what it is we do. So and it's you know we've kind of dumbed down the, the deliverable method, and, and that's a shame. Last question for you: um, What's the best piece of advice that someone ever gave you, or maybe you learned along the way? I think with Brian Eno and Daniel Lenoir when I was a young engineer, um, they pulled me aside and they said, you know, there's often a tendency for young engineers to to um, get their engineering chops together and then move on to production or move on to, you know, you know, move on to another aspect of their career. And and they said, why don't you, you know, really become a master of, you know, a master recordist, you know, really kind of drill down and, and, uh, and, and, and soon as you become like, an expert in that, then move on to the next discipline. Like, don't try and do all together simultaneously because you'll end up doing them all badly. And, um, you know, if you get a reputation for being a really good recording engineer, then somebody will give you the opportunity to mix the record that you've recorded. And from then, you know, somebody will give you the opportunity to um, to uh, perhaps uh, collaborate and be a co-producer. And, and that was the advice I took. And, I, you know, I really tried to become a really good recording engineer first. And, you know, just through experience and collaborations and happenstance, you know, I got offered the opportunity to co-produce um, because all the projects I worked on uh, with all the people that I worked with, both, you know, both producers and engineers and musicians and artists, you know, everybody created a collaborative environment. And uh, when the time came to move up to the next level, you know, I'd already had a lot of experience that I just didn't realize that I'd had. So, you know, I try to become a good recordist first, and then I try to become a good mixer. And then, you know, once somebody offered me a chance to co-produce, when I thought I was ready, I took that opportunity. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or Go to bobbyowinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bobby.